Hey everybody, welcome to Gray Malkin Lane's newest Patreon episode. I am thrilled to be joined by my friend, the handsome, nerdy, and talented Andre Mason. How are you, Andre? I'm doing well, Chad. How are you doing? I'm good. It's a Saturday morning here. Salt Lake City has just left the 105 range and we're now like in the 80s and I feel sane again. (laughs) 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 This summer was kind of unbearable. How are things for you in New Jersey? New Jersey is revving up for fall. Um, It has been, the mornings have been low 60s. (laughs) <laughs> lately uh, i think we're cracking maybe like low 80s today so it's it's getting there that sounds like perfection to me it's I actually really perfect it's it's actually really perfect transition weather because you know the east coast can get cold very very quickly like within like weeks when the seasons start to change the uh i'm like my sweet spots anywhere from like 40 to 80 like i'm super happy anywhere in that range and you climb above mm-hmm. that and the higher it gets or the lower it gets then the more unhappy <laughs> i will agree i will agree i think 40 is my threshold i've gone camping in 30 degree weather and it's not really the best either so i, I definitely agree with the 40. so andre's been on gray malkin lane a couple of times we uh we initially had you on on the trial of the juggernaut which was so much longer than anticipated and you stuck it out with us thank you because uh, it's juggy man it's juggy he, it's, he's got a lot to talk about there's a lot to talk about uh hussein and hussein rashid and i just released an episode on sidorak which was two and a half hours it wasn't even about juggernaut it was about sidorak and it was still went on for fucking ever <laughs> it was great. uh tell people uh tell people who may not know you where they might know you from tell us a little bit about you Ooh, that's a good question because, you know, I can be everywhere and nowhere all at once. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, pretty much, I mean, I'm, I'm not necessarily a professional. I'm just a uh, very passionate fanboy who is pretty much everywhere in this sense. That, uh, you know, you can find me on social. I help run a X-Men fan uh, Facebook group. Um, you know, just guest appearing on different podcasts, talking about X-Men or just Marvel in general. So, you know, what I'm doing is just being very, very fun with what's happening because it's a good time to be a nerd. I mean, it's a good time to be into pop culture because it's so much happening, not just in comic book world, just like with everything. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, Andre uh, is talk nerdy to me on uh, social media. So you may have seen Andre's cosplay. Uh, Andre and I have been friends for a few months now. Uh, I initially got to know you, I think through Dylan Carter, uh, and I, I, it's been so fun getting to know you and hear your voice. Uh, I think you, every time we interact, I just, uh, I think you are someone who is so confident and secure and happy and direct about who you are. That, that may be funny feedback from, uh, from a <laughs> no, friend. No, no, because, you know, it's feedback. It's, it's, it's a compliment, actually. I would say more... It's a big compliment. Every, feedback. <laughs> every time we chat, I'm just like, this is someone who, like, this is someone I want to be around. This is someone who has such good energy. Uh, I'm thrilled to have you on the Patreon just to hang out one-on-one. So when we talked about this initially, I kind of proposed this idea that we're doing lesser-known villains or supporting characters and uh, I tossed a bunch of ideas your way and you came back with Moses Magnum uh, of all people (laughs) who I hadn't even considered but I'm so happy we are going there tell us why you chose Moses Magnum um I chose Moses Magnum because I always felt 
and I mean, and this is not to get uh, political at all. Oh, we, we're we're going to get political today. <laughs> I mean, it's going to get political because I think the conversation has been, which is very, very odd to me, that anytime you discuss a person of color in a fictional setting, it's quote unquote political when it's not. It's just, you know, people of color existing. Um, I think it was a missed opportunity that Moses Magnum wasn't a larger villain than what he was in the X-Men's world considering his origins um, or the retcon origins that um, came about with him um, and also just his interactions in the X-Men world because he has literally interacted with them you know for quite some time I want to say like he's been in and out of the, the picture for the last I don't know 40 40 years 40 plus years I want to mm -hmm, say mm -hmm. um, and no one really knows him because yeah, he has he, he debuted in 197 he debuted in 1975 so mm -hmm. this character is nearly 50 years old mm -hmm. and I mean and when you're talking about you know such a diverse cast as the X-Men they really haven't had any people of color as major villains um, which I thought was very odd from a uh, a standpoint of looking at it through a lens of of, of a diverse characters in a sense um moses magnum i think is one of those rare instances where you can kind of mine down and see where he actually went wrong in terms of how creators and writers have handled him yeah that's an interesting thing to consider i mean apocalypse is egyptian right or mm -hmm. mr sinister is british i'm trying to think of the major foes magneto is technically uh, uh german I can't. Yeah, but I mean, when we of... talk about apocalypse, he's got blue skin, so it's not like he's sure. presenting as Egyptian. Um, I think the last villain of color and another uh, obscure villain was probably Haven back in like X Factor. Sure, sure. like more like bit characters that are like mm -hmm. you know like that one guy on the Nasty Boys or like there's there's mm -hmm. just like a couple across the way, but yeah, he's he's pretty unique. Claremont had a habit of especially in early X-Men, taking characters he'd used in other titles and making them prominent. He did it with the Ingarai. He did it with characters yeah. like Carol Danvers and Lindsay McCabe. He, Mystique from uh, from Ms. Marvel suddenly becomes this huge villain. Longshot and Mojo come from another place. Uh, mm -hmm. But Moses Magnum, he used a couple of times and then he kind of just faded away. Uh, away. Yeah. He's a great villain though. I, uh, so in preparation for this episode, I read his whole chronology, which isn't too much, but yeah. uh, if, if, if you read through my notes, there's multiple times I type in capital letters, like, holy shit, or fuck, or damn, like, this guy's savage. Like, he's, uh, he's intense. Uh, what are, what is your uh, relationship with this character as a fan? Um, I want to say the one time that I saw that he was really prominent for me, um, was when I was really heavily into comic books. So like, I want to say the early nineties. So when he showed up in the Deathlock issues and that that moment, it was written by uh, Dwayne McDuffie who was uh, just starting out in terms of his writing career, um, just started using Moses Magnum as kind of like this ancillary villain who would pop up in Deathlock. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this is really cool. Like he's a cool character. And then like from there, I wanted to learn more about him. So it was harder to track down where he was back then because, you know, we didn't have the internet, <laughs> you know, the early nineties, you know, AOL wasn't necessarily there. So like asking people where this character was, it was very hard to track him down. So it wasn't until like years later where I'm like, oh, this is where he was from. I just always thought that he was there and just never really been like one of those characters that were used past 
uh, Deathlock, and then like you know his little run-ins with like Black Panther. That was it. Yeah, and we'll get to the Deathlock story in a minute. That's not a title that's well remembered by people, but we have uh, a black writer writing a black hero. Uh, and no one thought was black at the time right that's what that's the other thing because whoever was drawing deathlock at the moment it literally changed from panel to panel sometimes he'd be bald sometimes he would have a blonde crew cut and you never really knew i mean he's <laughs> so half cyborg and like half decomposing flesh right like yeah um, <laughs> but he's but again, also, that but, he's is also <laughs> but he's also fighting a black villain and you don't see that represented yeah. a lot when the creative team is taking uh like a myriad of black characters in this way and it's, well, it's he, well did. he did you did a little bit. In that era, I want to say uh, any time between 1990 and 1998, you actually had a really good crop of Black villains and Black superheroes. Sure. Um, but you never really knew that they were Black because they always had a mask on. Sure. So, or something that was affecting their, their, uh, their appearance. So, like, I didn't know that Spawn was Black. I didn't know that Nighthawk was black. I didn't know that Deathlock was black. I didn't know half of these characters were black because they there's something wrong with their face. Fascinating. <laughs> you know, like it's just it was very much like, oh, okay, these these characters are there. And then like, you know, Dwayne McDuffie does like the milestone universe, and then boom, we have all of these people. But like very much so, like, even what was that other character's name? Um other characters thing there was there was a spider-man character that came up after spawn was created <laughs> that looked like spawn and he was also black um and no one knew that i uh i'm not sure which character that is uh, he was of it's you had you, there there's another character I, I, I can't say his name is not night mask um but it's something um very similar to he looked like spawn um, oh oh uh uh it'll come to me in just a minute he mm -hmm. He was featured pretty pretty prominently in the nineties. Uh, yeah, like Night I said, Watch. they were Nightwatch. Nightwatch. There we go. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was like Night something, but yeah, those characters um, were black villains uh, or black characters, and they were all like very vastly different. So when you have somebody like Moses Magnum, <laughs> who's like not hiding, well, you know, behind certain things, I think that was a missed opportunity, especially um, how powerful he was, given who he was. Uh, I was a very conservative, religious, quiet kid who did not have much uh, knowledge about uh, Black America or civil rights or uh, it, until my education. So I'm a social worker. And when I went to college is when I started learning history the way that it mm -hmm. should be taught, not the way that it's whitewashed in schools, right? So when mm -hmm. I first came across Moses Magnum, it was in 1998 when uh, Kurt Busey accused him in the Avengers volume three run. Uh, we'll cover that today. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of a cool villain. And Kurt Busey always pulls people from like random spots in Marvel history. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I went back and read a little bit of Magnum then, but I just didn't give it a lot of thought. And it's not until now, I'm 43 years old, reading this character front to back and seeing how different writers interpret him again. He's mm. consistently savage, but there's He's some, consistently. <laughs> but there's some really bold stories told with him that work into fascinating places in in history. In a couple more mm. Patreon episodes, I'm going to be doing uh, an uh, an episode like this about Storm's parents. And mm. as I researched them, it was kind of a similar thing. You have these characters that are not often used, 
and writers keep interpreting them in different ways and adding a lot to their stories. Uh, and it's just fascinating. So Marvel, Marvel in the 60s had no black characters, just they were bit characters, yeah. they were on the side. Then mm -hmm. we got Black Panther. And then mm -hmm. in the late 60s, Black Panther got added to the Avengers roster. And mm -hmm. we started to see white writers uh, like Jerry Conway and Steve Englehart start to create more black characters. We saw Misty mm -hmm. Knight, uh, Tony Isabella with Misty Knight. We saw the Falcon and we started mm -hmm. getting more representation. Uh, Power Man came along. Uh, right. Mo yep. Moses Magnum debuts in 1975 for the first mm -hmm. time. And this is kind of an era when Marvel was starting to tell more bold stories. And we started to see more characters of color featured more prominently. Uh, mm -hmm. So he he first shows up in Giant Size Spider-Man number four uh, by Jerry Conway. And Moses Magnum, we learn, and Marvel has this thing where they'll tie people into history sometimes. Uh, mm -hmm. We learn in his origin, it says that he was born in Ethiopia 15 years before Italy invaded Ethiopia. And that yes. took place in 1935. We had uh, World War II prehistory here. We had Italy kind of invading countries all around them. And there was mm -hmm. a huge division in the Ethiopian culture. We're not gonna go a ton into that, but a key part of Moses Magnum's origins as told in this story by Jerry Conway is that when he was 15 years old or a little bit older, he sided with the with the Italians. He turned against his people in an effort to profit from war. So before we even get into that character, let me hear your thoughts on this as his yeah. It tells us a lot already about this. Yeah. Uh, yes, because what you have is um, a a person in a sense, not a character, but a person in a sense who was affected by war that didn't want to help his people. He wanted to get back at the people who kind of did the things to Ethiopia in a very different way. Because what you can see is that, you know, he would probably be the polar opposite of say, like Black Panther. Black Panther would have been like, no, I'm gonna go against the people who have attacked Wakanda. Moses is like, actually, you know what? These people have a really good idea. So I'm just gonna kind of keep my past where it is and I keep my, or, you know, my, my people where they are and just kind of take the idea of weapons and what kind of power that has and to create a life for myself that isn't derived from where I was born. Interesting. So you have almost uh, almost a heroic interpretation of Moses. I see him almost more like the guy that doesn't give a shit about anyone but himself. He's the character that- Oh yeah, no, be... yeah, let me be clear. Not a hero, not a hero in this season <laughs> at all. <laughs> not a hero, no, 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 no. He's clearly like very self-serving, absolutely. <laughs> he strikes me as the type of character that you see who would like recruit child soldiers to fight back because he wants like personal profit, personal, like he will shoot you in the head, shove you out of a plane, sink your fucking uh -huh. country into the ocean if he can get a million dollars out of it. Get what he wants. No, Fuck you, only me. He's 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 in touch his whole history. I'm like, God damn, this, guy, this guy's a- And that's why I said it was a very, very missed opportunity because you had a villain who was doing really huge villain stuff. I mean, like he wasn't doing like Doctor Doom level things or apocalypse level things, but he in himself was doing some really, really, really awful shit. And- he's being beaten by kind of low-level people. Like, you know, he's being bested by like the Punisher or he's being bested by like, uh, not Spider-Man, but at the time Spider-Man was kind of low-level in terms of who he fought in terms of like people. 
Yeah, yeah. well, and I, I would say this with affection because I love a good villain, but I would argue he's even worse than Doctor Doom in a lot of ways. Like, yeah. So in, yeah. This guy's, in this guy's first appearance, we learn he's fascinated by weapons and he has started testing biochemical gas weapons on civilians to see mm -hmm. like, how they're going to die. He's a war criminal. He is someone who wants to sell arms to everyone. Uh, they start kidnapping people and testing weapons on them to murder them. And Spider-Man gets involved. And Magnum, who's like purple turtle, turtleneck, green jacket, green pants, like he's he's a he's a good looking, imposing, strong man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and he but he God, he makes his men dress in like the worst, like orange and green and brown suits. Like <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, he's like, I, I have, have to be the best looking one in the room. I have to be. But that goes into his psyche. He has to be the best thing about what's happening. And it's that's literally one of his major downfalls, like his manner of dress as through the years <laughs> he's like i will murder innocents but i will look good doing it like he's he, like there's a quote from his first appearance where he says as befits a man of my international status i assure you moses magnum travels in style uh -huh. and he he captures spider-man punches him across the face punches him in the stomach rips his mask off uh, says, sir, you try my patience. I'm not some common criminal you can trifle with. I am Moses Magnum, the world's foremost independent weapons manufacturer. Uh, Spider-Man's wearing makeup so he can't be recognized, but Moses is like, I will kill you and then I will find out who you were. Uh, <laughs> and then Punisher gets involved. There's this huge ass battle. Uh, Moses Magnum like grabs this, uh, he grabs Spider-Man and like tries to break his back over back, his yes, like yeah. Bane Batman style. And then there's a, mm -hmm. a part where he lifts this like canister of gas over his head. He's gonna murder Spider-Man, but Punisher shoots the gas and it explodes. And they're like, oh, he must be dead. So we can, we can leave. <laughs> Moses Magnum is not dead. <laughs> No, 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 no. And you think that he would, but you know, they didn't check. They just assumed that he <laughs> died from it. Tell me your thoughts on this guy from this first appearance. He's scary. He was, I mean, very scary. Like I said, for the time frame that we're talking about, I think the villains were all scary because they're pulling on what we were being affected by. You know, we were going through the Cold War. We were, you know, just going into the whole nuclear power and understanding uh, chemical weapons and things like that. So Moses was actually patterned after very scary people, like real life people. So the fact of the matter is that you have that aspect of it. And then he's like, no, I know hand-to-hand -hand combat. We don't know where he learned this stuff. We don't know who this guy is. He's like, no, like I understand that these people are in my way. So it doesn't matter if he came through. He didn't go, oh my God, it's Spider-Man. Oh my God, it's Punisher. It was more like, you're in my way. So because you're in my way, I don't give a damn who you are. I'm going to get rid of you. Yeah, fuck you. I will destroy you. I will destroy everything. <laughs> this is this is a guy, I mean, almost Dr. Doom-like in that he will reward loyalty if you do exactly as he says. Mm -hmm. But the moment you cross him, he will murder you. He's He will murder you and then he will murder your children to make sure they don't come back in the future for revenge. He doesn't yeah. give a shit about anyone except his own money, profit, like Absolutely. and empire. Absolutely. Like there was the, um, what was the issues? Um, in Deathlock, where he had one guy who was basically his crony, and every time you saw him on the panel, the guy's sweating. Like, and you see that he's sweating and giving his reports to Moses because he knew at that point Moses will basically bury him if he screwed it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he, uh, he, 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 terrifying. he keeps a very tight leash, which makes him a great villain. There's no 
there's no uh vulnerability to this man except his own ego like mm -hmm. that's the only way to get him is to like make him do something rash because you taunt mm -hmm. him in such a way uh next yeah. time he, next time he shows up is power man annual number one this is the year later yeah, 1976 yeah. and it's when chris claremont gets him for the first time and i'll summarize mm -hmm. this story quickly then let's talk about it so claremont Cla claremont loves a good villain uh and he was all over the place in the early mm -hmm. X -Men days claremont was writing everything he was he was uh he was doing stuff in all kinds of places so in this story, we have a woman named Amanda Sheridan. She has hired Luke Cage, who is the hero for hire. He will protect you and fight for heroism, but you got to pay him first, which is so smart. <laughs> uh, and uh, she wants her daughter, Samantha Sheridan, uh, protected because she's at a military base in Japan. Amanda tells Power Man that, uh, that, that some of her, some of uh, Magnus's victims when he was doing those nerve gas experiments included her son, Thomas. So the, like mm. we're seeing some civilian uh, reactions to these crimes that he committed. Uh, she also tells him that like Magnum has let people believe that he's dead, but he is very much alive. So we're now in Japan. Uh, Magnum sends some of his men to kidnap Samantha. They kill a bunch of soldiers who are in their way. Uh, Luke Cage is there. We see Magnum. He's like skin tight, white, like popped collar, like red accessories. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he's got this kind of characteristic red triangle on his chest here that we'll see used with him again and again over the years. Uh, they attack. Uh, Samantha and Cage are brought onto Magnum's plane with a bunch of captains. And uh, I, I said captains, like Magnum. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the, the the next big moment that comes on magnum's like i'm not fucking around with you guys and he opens the plane door from orbit and like kicks cage out like bye and just like knocks him to the earth and then he shoots samantha yeah. like he he shoots her right in the chest he also kills one of his own agents who betrayed him here uh again mm -hmm. just like crazy crazy savage so we learn in this story that punisher uh, after he shot Magnum, Magnum apparently, this is always comic book retcon, he had some sort of like anti-gas suit under his clothing that allowed him to survive. Uh -huh. uh, he takes uh, Samantha back to the island of Katsuyashima, where he has started this like massive drilling operation right over a fault line, even though he knows that if they hit the fault line, it's going to like kill millions of people. And he just doesn't care because he sees it as an opportunity for profit. Uh, Luke Cage attacks like freeze samantha they go down to shut down the 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 operation uh and magnum's impressed he's like i kicked this guy out of the plane uh and he is still here and <laughs> he uh he basically says out loud i don't care if millions die as long as i profit then uh this is where he shoots samantha he's like i'm done with you now he, he pops her yeah, right in the chest yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh there's like a, a tussle with cage uh there's <laughs> there's this massive battle Basically, the earthquakes hit right then, and Magnum uh, falls to his supposed death into the death like, an earthquake <laughs> as like the tunnels close around him. So, just kind of summarizing all that really quickly. But uh, again, holy shit, this guy's not kidding around. Tell me your thoughts on on this story. Um, well, first of all, we have to really talk about the fact that when he first met Luke Cage, he dropped him. Like literally, Luke Cage was like, "Wait." that actually hurt like this this guy where did this strength come from so you have a, a a change in moses magnum that you didn't see from before like you now know that there's something different about him um and that's when i noticed like oh what happened like 
you know, he wasn't just like a, a regular dude anymore. Like he is able to lay a punch on, on Luke Cage and that's not an easy thing to do. So that's number one. Uh, I think <laughs> number two was that it showed again how evil Moses can be. Like I, I, I was literally like, he is willing to sink all of Japan to get what he wanted. <laughs> like, I don't care. Um, but I also think that that's the the inherent problem of Moses. Um, I think his quest to be an arms dealer uh, stifles him a little bit. It stifles his purview and what he is willing to do. Like he can actually just do something and only get paid so much money and be willing to do it. Like he wasn't about world domination. He was just about facilitating certain things. And I think him being an arms dealer limited his viewpoint of what he really wanted to do. And again, not necessarily heroic, but it allowed writers to keep him very kind of one dimension in that sense. Uh, he has already fought Spider-Man Punisher and Luke Cage in two appearances, and he has been, like, undaunted. They're super-powered Americans. We're going to learn later he's actually an American citizen from birth, which we don't exactly know how that happened. He's from Ethiopia, but also has American citizenship. But he, uh, he both of these stories, I, I don't know if I had read them in my youth, I just didn't pay that close attention, but reading them for this episode, I'm like, fuck, this guy, <laughs> he's intense. Yeah, no, he was no joke. He was no, like, literally no joke. I mean, and, and for the late 70s, it was good. Like, he's a great villain. Like, they, 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 there's a moment there when he's, like, fighting Luke and they're, they're going at it and, like, he's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Luke Cage. You don't see that all the time. Like, literally, they were going punch for punch. And they're like, Luke is like, damn, like, I'm actually getting winded from this. <laughs> so, like, it was there. I think there's some great moments. But yeah, like you said, like, when you go back and read it, you're like, holy shit, this guy's like, he's he's that guy. He's that villain. He's that. He's like a Bond villain. And <laughs> if he found a way to do something dastardly and it was on a global scale, he'd have been happy. And there's something about white writers with black villains or black heroes where there's a lot of like inherent racism in the portrayals. Like if you read Black Panther and the Avengers early on, every issue like uh, Hawkeye's calling him like, hey, jungle man, or like there's, there's these like moments of like just blatant racism that was like socially acceptable. As I read these yeah. two stories with Magnum, I don't get those feels. I like they he seems like a formidable threat. And even though it's white writers, it doesn't feel like that uh that inherent racism is mixed into these stories, at least to me. Did you have the same experience? Well, yeah, because he wasn't going around calling everybody honky. Like he, he, was, <laughs> he, he wasn't, wasn't jive talking with snap. Yeah, Wilson. he wasn't jive talking. He wasn't in, I mean, and this was around the black exploitation era of 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 black characterization in film. So you would just think that it would have carried over because even Luke Cage had dipped in it a little bit yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of his campaigniness in that era, but Moses was not. But I think um, it can be gleaned from just his name because this is a man who never really had like a code name or a villain name. He just went by his first and last name, um, which says so much <laughs> about like who he is. Do you think his actual name is Moses Magnum? I feel like he chose this title. I think he chose that title. I don't think his name is Moses Magnum. 
there's there's some commentary on that in a little bit uh, about the idea of that name. Uh, but no, it's great. So uh, Claremont picks Magnum up again in his early X-Men run. It's X-Men 118, 119. But later on, these issues were reprinted in classic X-Men. And Claremont, yes. Claremont in the classic X-Men series would reprint the original issue and then write a backup feature that like added to the issue. So in, in classic X-Men 25, we get a couple pages about Magnum that tell us what happened after he fell into the earthquake. Do you want to cover that part for us? What happens here? Yes. So in classic X-Men 25, um, after it, it picks up after the earthquake on the island when he was fighting Luke Cage. And it turns out that Magnum did not die. He actually fell to the earth and dun 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 is saved by none other than Apocalypse, who for some reason recognized him as like this big person in terms of like uh, chaotic global uh, shit. He wants an agent decided, of chaos, he says. Any agent of chaos, yes. <laughs> um, and then he basically grants Moses and gives Moses powers out of nowhere, um, kind of giving himself the namesake of Moses Magnum and gives him earthquake powers. So out of nowhere. <laughs> this is this is part of the fun of ret retroactive continuity. When Claremont initially wrote X-Men 118, 119, Apocalypse didn't exist yet. But later, no. before classic X-Men debuts, Apocalypse uh, exists. And then Claremont goes back to tell us how these earthquake powers happen. I think when we read X-Men 118, we're supposed to get the idea that like uh, this earthquake he fell into, like some sort of mineral accident took place and granted him powers, right? Like Spider-Man gets bit by a spider and has spider powers. It's like, he fell into an earthquake and got earthquake powers is almost how you're supposed to read yeah. it. But adding it was unclear. Yeah, to it was this, unclear how that happened. <laughs> adding apocalypse to this makes it fun. Do you get the impression Magnum is a mutant and apocalypse is releasing his powers, or that apocalypse is using like celestial technology to give Magnum powers, which is kind of more how I read. Yeah. It. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I had a little bit of both because um, by the time I read this issue it was around the same time as the whole debate on whether or not Cloak and Dagger were mutants or they were mutates. Sure. Um, because it was very unclear of how, uh, you know, people would get their powers unless it was, you know, basically stated. So, you know, it was the whole issue of the fact that Cloak and Dagger were latent mutants and the drug use had activated their powers or the right. drugs given to them had activated that power. Um, whereas, I got initially that Moses's power kicked in when he was falling in the earthquake and that his powers kicked in there. But again, we're also told that a traumatic event during someone's teen years usually activates the X gene. So there was some conflicting information there. So when I saw it, I was like, okay, well, something happened when he fell and now he has his powers. So I don't know if at this time when I was reading it, were they activated because of that? And then when we get the explanation, I go, oh, that's why. <laughs> I think so, it, yeah, I thought I that he was a mutant. I, I literally thought he was a mutant after that. Yeah, I think he could be interpreted either way still. I think the official Marvel canon, like if you read the handbooks, I think it lists him as a mutate currently. But it would be very easy for writers to say he was a mutant and Apocalypse like unlocked his abilities, right? Or... Because yeah. uh, he was holding his own against Luke Cage, right? Like, there's something strong about this guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Regardless, he's fucking fantastic. He's <laughs> again, I, again, I say this amazing. He literally was like, "No, okay, so my last, you know, venture into Japan it didn't work, but I'm gonna go back and finish the job." He's like, "So now I can literally sink you without a machine, and I'm gonna do that." 
<laughs> so so X-Men 118, 119, which is Magnum's big debut in the X-Men title. And there's more appearances in X-Men than you think, but this is the big one. This is the one people mm-hmm. remember. He now has earthquake powers. It's Chris Claremont, John Byrne. He's in a white and red costume, which is kind of iconic. He has like a really big forehead in a lot of his early appearances. And and it was insane. And it was like his, 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 whole, his whole hairline shot back. I'm like, what's happening? In his later ones, he has like a mohawk and it fits him much better. But uh, but here he's, uh, he's, he's looking a little haggard, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also very strong. Uh, but anyway, he hits Japan with an earthquake. He's got these like uh-huh. golden mandroids that he sends to to like to to get members of the government to hold hostage uh-huh. uh the x-men and sunfire get involved uh magnum uh basically says give me control over japan or i will fucking seek into the o- ocean which mm-hmm. I- again this guy's coming back strong what's his motivation here what do you think um <laughs> i didn't see that he had any other motivation what i saw in these issues was the fact that they the, the Claremont had an opportunity to literally make a new Magneto and uh, didn't happen. Like he had the he had the whole Mandroid situation. I was like, okay, so he's got some little Doctor Doom things here. And then when he's like, basically, I'm like, he's basically telling the Japanese government, give me all this money or I'm going to sink your island. So to him, again, you know, self gain trying to do certain things it was when he called himself the master of the earth yes again that brings magneto feelings to me because magneto was like i'm the master of magnetism the earth is my plaything why not like this this is perfect for him um i think here the motivation is just being a huge villain at this point because uh you know he is also still an arms dealer so he needs the money it's not like he needed the clout. He needed the money. <laughs> so we get a text. Before we get the apocalypse stuff added later, here's what the text box says about what happened after he fell into the earth in that Power Man story. It says, and I quote, uh, he should have died. But as he fell, the laser beam, the exotic weaponry of his combat suit, the elemental force of the quake itself had all combined within him in some mad arcane fashion to give him the power primal the ability to focus an infinite amount of energy anywhere on earth in any manner he chose, in this case, to create an earthquake. And basically what we see him doing here is he can either shoot some force bolts at you or he can make the ground mm-hmm. shake. shake uh, yeah. But but it's described in text as like, he's super insanely powerful. Uh, and he's ready to sink Japan. The X-Men attack and he's like, fuck it, I'm, I'm going to do what I said. How do they defeat him here? Um, I believe, if memory serves correct, Banshee was the one who helped defeat him. Banshee, um, because, like, Banshee, Sonic Scream counters his vibrations or something. His like vibrations, that. for some reason, you know, science. <laughs> um, that basically, uh, the Banshee's Sonic Scream was able to counteract his earthquake powers, and the energy from that was directed to Moses, um, and basically causing the island that they were on, which was Magnum's secret lair island to again blow up seemingly killing magnum in the process again <laughs> so if we're keep, keeping count this is the third attempted death of moses magnum in the comics so just to take it into effect for a second uh the the kind of globalization of this guy the first story white rider two white heroes fighting magnum in ethiopia mm-hmm. second story we've got black hero white rider 
fighting Magnum in Japan. And now we have a white rider with a team of heroes that include a black woman, which is important, fighting a black mm -hmm. man back in Japan again. Uh, and, and we're up to like the late 1970s now. Any thoughts yeah. just on that so far? Um, honestly, it wasn't, I'm not the type of person that believes that you have to be a black person to write another black person. Oh, oh agreed. Um, sure. Um, because the thing is, if we're, unless we're talking about a very particular experience that's happening, um, which Moses wasn't doing, like Moses's culture, his, his background wasn't an issue. It's almost like anyone could step in and actually wrote him, um, in a certain way. I think at the time, again, I wasn't thinking about it in that sense. Um, do I wish that he was written by a black person? Probably. But again, I don't think that would have changed anything about what he was and what he wasn't. Yeah, and rep um, represent I, representation matters. And the reason I bring this up specifically is because in the next couple of stories, we see very different types of stories being told with this character when we yes. see yes. when we see black writers in a prominent position to be able to tell complex stories. Absolutely. And yes. So it changes a lot. But it changes a lot. I think I think Claremont had a control on the situation. I think that at one point in time, if given the room, he could have wrote Magnum to be a really great foil for the X-Men if given the space and opportunity to. I just think that at that point in time, Claremont just blew up um, in terms of popularity and just like was shot into another direction in terms of the X-Men. Um, but I think at the time we weren't telling black stories. Um, we were telling stories with people that just happened to be black. Sure. Um, and I think that at the time it benefited from having that opportunity and then also the fact that there weren't really any black writers at that moment in time. Like, you know, there weren't any comic book writers that were of color to do so. So I, I can't fault it for that. Um, but I think that later on, when Dwayne McDuffie gets his hand on him, he's kind of written as a blank slate stuff. <laughs> yes, but in, a, but in a much more complex story with a lot more historical references. So Dwayne yeah. McDuffie, 1992, he writes Deathlock who is a complicated character. He's a, a black man who has been revived as partial cyborg. And he's kind of, he's got like a computer brain and there's a lot of violence and he's trying to save his family, but it doesn't always know who he is. It's a good mm -hmm. read. The art, yeah. the art from that era is a little tricky to get into sometimes. The characters are huge, like not Rob Layfield level, but like giant chests and huge guns. And it's just, it's a different mm -hmm. era of comic books, but it's 92. So this is like middle of the AIDS crisis. There are very different conversations about race happening and representation happening yes. in media and yes. in comic books. Uh, and uh, we, mm -hmm. see, we see Magnum as a major threat for this character, uh, Deathlock, in this series. Uh, yeah. Do you want to present this section or do you want me to take over the summary that we talked um, about? I can, I can present this section. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, because, you know, this is, this is where I remember uh, most of my memories of, of Magnum. Yeah. So we can say like uh, the first couple of years of the Deathlock series that was written by Dwayne McDuffie. And uh, we say this name um, just so everyone who's listening understands who Dwayne McDuffie is. He is a prominent or was a prominent uh, African American writer who has basically wrote anything from DC to uh, Marvel and was actually the person who went ahead and 
created milestone comics with characters that we love like static shock yeah. um he wrote, he wrote ben 10 he died in he wrote, uh, ben 10. He wrote a lot of justice league uh, animated mm-hmm. series so you know Dwayne mcduffie in some way shape or form um and i think when he took over deathlock um this is where i think um it was important to have a black writer uh, writing black characters because he brought a certain authenticity that was missing from certain things. And I think that's where, again, people are like, well, this is why you need to have black writers um, who write black characters. Um, I think in this sense uh, for Deathlock, his race wasn't an issue because again, he wasn't presenting that way. His family was the issue, making sure that his family was taken uh, care of. So in these particular issues or in this particular volume of Deathlock, uh, Magnum has basically uh, set up a company called Magnum Munitions, and he has now started to sell weapons, um, including things, uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction very early in the 1990s. Um, so basically- a And this character- is like this is like different era of tech, like computers are coming, oh, out. People's, people's understanding of technologies change. There's lots of like, virtual reality and artificial intelligence and like big a lot of digital espionage a lot of digital digital espionage before it was a thing um because you know with comics we 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 tend to think of comics as a real world escapism but most of the time we're reading stories that are not only you know grounded in reality but also like they were kind of future casting like now we're dealing with digital espionage now and they were talking about it back in 1990s I'm like yeah like we're dealing with you know the metaverse but not really like it's yeah, like it's there think of the way like modern writers will use like nanites and everything and you're like ooh, uh, it's a nanite but back then it was like virtual reality and like uploading mm-hmm. shit to everything and it was really scary <laughs> it was really scary because you know again technology and the internet was like becoming a thing so like you know we had this kind of burgeoning uh techno wave and i think why this was also very important um, because this is where I first heard the term, uh, the term of Afrofuturism, where we're talking about um, uh, where Black people fit in futuristic terms and how we are um, a part of the ever-growing technology, especially when it came to Wakanda um, in this sense. Uh, I think with the introduction of Deathlock and bringing Moses back into it, it showed very distinctive uses of that Afrofuturism term because you had two different characters who are on totally different spectrum. And then you introduce Black Panther and you're like, oh, there's a, <laughs> these are three Black characters who are using technology in vastly different ways. <laughs> well, and when you first, this is a whole different conversation. When you first meet Black Panther, he has like a jungle of trees that are made out of machines. And the Fantastic mm-hmm. Four are like, ooh. And the way yeah. we see the way we see Wakanda represented now, like in the Black Panther film, is a great idea of Afrofuturism in a very different way than just, you know, like metal trees. <laughs> <laughs> the jungle mm-hmm. like it's changed a yeah, lot yeah yeah i mean he's he's using his own knowledge and again i don't know if this was knowledge that was given to him by apocalypse like you said like was he given celestial understanding but now all of a sudden when we we meet him he's not just only selling weapons he's selling high-tech weapons um one of, one case, of his weapons is called the terror terror-dome. <laughs> <laughs> the terror dome yeah um which was which sounds like a good time, actually. <laughs> yeah, and it also gives me like throwbacks to like GI Joe and Cobra and the Terror Drone and all those other good stuff. So I was having a good time. Um, <laughs> this. Um, but really, the really important thing about it, you're also introduced to a character named High Tech, 
who broke into Magnum's company and tried to still uh, still intel about like what he was doing. And I thought that was really interesting because high tech laid the groundwork for Dwayne's character hardware and well, milestone. High tech is also really interesting because this is a character, and this isn't a big part of this podcast, but it's a character named Curtis Carr, who mm -hmm. is an I a Luke Cage villain initially from 1973. He's called Chemistro, and he has like yeah. a gun. He has like a gun that can change the organic substance. So we're seeing we're seeing McDuffie bring in another prominent black character or villain from a different title here too, and yeah. redefining him. But I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think what the I think the appearance of high tech is what I'm referring to in terms of how he looks because hardware has a very, very similar look. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so we like, again, we just see like Moses being Moses at this point now, just um, now using um, his clout to go after AIM of all people. <laughs> so um, so what we, we have is like a couple issues that run through the fact that uh, Deathlock has to be involved because now Deathlock is hired to figure out what was stolen um, from Moses and then what also Moses was into. So basically we have Deathlock being uh, invited to Wakanda um, by Black Panther to basically figure out what's happening because one of the terror domes is given to a, another kingdom in Wakanda. So, well, so the, 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 the key part, I think that's really important to wrestling. Fergonite, first, Fergonite, I don't know what has happening with my words right now. <laughs> It's, it's 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 too early. early. We do get one moment with Magnum where one of his loyal men is arrested, and Magnum yes. orders him killed so that he can't give any intel out. And then mm -hmm. Magnum destroys like a whole aim facility because he wants this weapons contract, and he uses his earthquake powers to just like fucking annihilate it. Mantle. Then then he takes over an African country called Canaan. Yes, and he he's trying to infiltrate in like infiltrate Wakanda to take their technology to benefit him. Uh, and so part of the reason he's like created this new nation is so that he'll have diplomatic immunity. Like I can go to the United Nations. Nobody can prosecute me. Like, mm -hmm. holy fuck. <laughs> this is, he was this pulling a doctor. Yeah, he was pulling a doctor. He was like, I'm gonna be able to do this and you can't say anything because I'm a sovereign nation. So, ha. <laughs> so then we get the terror dome in Wakanda. Uh, uh, go ahead. So we get the terror dome in Wakanda and uh, basically... He, he like you said he has taken over this kingdom of Canaan. Uh, King Baru is basically under Moses' control, um, and now we are introduced to a very newly redesigned Moses Magnum with a cape <laughs> and and so like he, crazy giant like tech. He's like cyber armor. Like yeah, so he's now full on super villain. Like the minute you get a cape, you're a super villain. Still doesn't have a code name yet. I think at this point we could have just called him Rupture, and I would have been fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> he just needed some but also what i thought was really interesting here is that we're introduced to um a whole new string of characters that i actually really enjoyed because um they were comic book characters that were also black we get introduced to um a woman named freak who is a uh freak, with a, freak with a ph, PH. <laughs> which is very 1990 uh freak is fat <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and then we get, you know, we in, we get introduced to King Baru, and then we also get uh, introduced to a, a, a wonderful cast of even other Wakandans that have never been seen again. Like the head of security is wearing this all green outfit and a cape. Um, 
there's a there's a there's something really insane and this is where we could get into crazy politics we have an ethiopian american black villain taking over an african country and declaring war on another african country and then he gives a speech to the public where he's trying to moses magnum's trying to make himself sound benevolent in order to attract like talented americans to move to his country where he promises them mm-hmm. like a life free of racism. Uh, do, will you read the speech that he gives uh, where he's like, I remember <laughs> freedom summer. Like, wait, will you read that for us? Yeah, sure. So when he he has the speech, um, he goes, I remember freedom summer when blacks and whites worked the fields together, hoping to harvest a just society. Well, the harvest is passed, the summer has ended and we are not saved. Still, America has a race problem. I offer a solution. As of three months ago, I am the sole and rightful ruler of Canaan. Since that time, I have recruited the cream of Black America. My talented 10th have paved the way so that today I may make this declaration. I throw open the doors of Canaan and declare it evermore the homeland of African Americans. Though the true homes of our ancestors are lost through our bloody history, I offer this replacement. Come home. And for those who chose to remain behind, know that your lot will improve because the oppressor now knows (laughs) you have an option. My name is Moses. Follow me to the promised land. Holy shit. <laughs> and again, this is what year? 1992. And we're talking mm-hmm. about this still because I feel like I don't know if anyone's paying attention, but we actually just had a conversation like that in the recent Black Panther issues where Black Panther has now opened up uh, the borders of Wakanda to uh, African-Americans to go live there. Mm-hmm. and offering a mass exodus so this is something that has happened now over 20 years ago and moses is now taking again a very distinctive magneto approach well but moses moses doesn't seem to at least the way i'm reading it and this is why this story is so bold for me he doesn't he's he's offering freedom and like a life free of racism but he doesn't want to provide that he wants to exploit the people who come to him so Absolutely. He's, he's using this like speech promising like i realize america's racist come here for freedom but really what i want is to profit from you here I, and we see this i want to rule you i yeah, want to we... rule you he didn't say freedom i want to rule you sure sure because i've given you this i have given you this opportunity to live and possibly first uh, but he is not offered that he just said hey leave america for a better place but what's making that better he's like the scary alternative of wakanda where mm-hmm. wakanda's promising uh, uh a different type of freedom but he's mm-hmm. drawing he's like giving like a Mal- like a like a martin luther king speech mm-hmm. uh, but he wants to just profit off of you it I, it, it I think it's a bold story there's so much political complexity oh uh, yes the way absolutely. We interpret in the 90s, um, I remember, uh, you know, growing up as, as a teenager in the 90s, and there was a Black renaissance. And when I say Black renaissance, I'm talking about uh, when it came to pop culture, when it, uh, you know, music and, and television and movies. It, it's an era that I love because the thing is, it was creative. And when you have this conversation in comic books in 1992, it should have been a lightning rod of a conversation that um, this character is is a villain that is bold, but is also talking about black issues. And it's a very kind of uh, a weird dichotomy and he's, he's getting into the, the black diaspora of black Americans and like, we need to go, which was a conversation that was had 
you know, back in the 90s in all these different ways. Like people were just like, no, maybe we should leave. Maybe we should go back. Or maybe we should just make our lives here better. So there was a lot of that conversation. Well, and this is, I mean, America is so extraordinarily racist and awful in so many parts of our society. And this is 20 years post civil rights. And mm -hmm. we have we have over the decades here, a lot of prominent Americans who are black and talented and incredible who have mm -hmm. left our country to move either to Europe or different countries in Africa saying it's too racist there. I don't want to do this. I'm going to cover uh, in, a, in a couple episodes, I'm doing uh, Storm's Parents with Bar Fox. And there's a story where uh, it, it's, it's in Black Panther right before the Storm uh, Black Panther wedding, where Storm's mom, when she's still alive, is like, I don't want to live in this country anymore. I would rather go to a war zone than be here where I'm afraid every day all the time. And that's also by a black writer. And we're seeing a complexity in the storytelling here through the 90s that is so impressive and helping us kind of have a reckoning with what's going on. Uh, but so many white oh, readers yeah. had no idea what the story being told here was. They're just like, oh, cool, it's high tech. Yeah. There's things blowing up and they have no idea. No, no, what absolutely. And I, absolutely. And I think that's also the problem because Deathlock wasn't a really big character for you to follow back then. He was one of those, you know, very low frequency characters. So to have this conversation in these comics in 1990s was huge like huge <laughs> but we're so still like, very 90s because Deathlock has an assassin named killjoy yes <laughs> you have these like 90s lists of like here's like blood and kill and death on one side and like hawk and joy and pain on the other side and you just like mash two words together to create mm -hmm. any character but here's any character. joy <laughs> i mean so we have um magnum has now um at his disposal um a bunch of assassins um because he has now taken over Kanan. so we have uh killjoy is sent after deathlock um and deathlock you know of course defeats killjoy um and so because he's impressed by deathlock um magnum wants to basically recruit deathlock after this and ask him to rejoin or join new Kanan. and he's like you know everything is basically in place for my african-american homeland and we need you <laughs> well you know um he's uh assuring economic independence um and basically really what it's coming down to is that he wants enough to take over wakanda and their vibranium production because that's going to give him untold amounts of resources untold world amounts of resources when it comes to not only and again we can't miss the point of Magnum. It wasn't that he was asking for black people to become free. He needed workers because now if he gets Wakandans, you know, their, their reserve of vibranium, he can make more weapons and sell it to the highest bidder at that point. And that's where he's saying economic independence, meaning that I'm going to basically fuel this country with my weapons. So doing something that Wakanda wasn't doing. So there's a big battle, it erupts, and uh, Magnum, as he's being defeated, is basically saying, I'm only trying to help my people. And Deathlock says, you ain't hardly Marcus Garvey, punches him in the face and defeats him. Uh, mm -hmm. the, Mar the Marcus Garvey reference here was also really fascinating. Do you know much about Garvey? Yes, yes. Um, Tell us who Mar Marcus Garvey was. Well, I mean, definitely being one of the, the most prolific uh, uh, Black leaders uh, at the time, Marcus Garvey was about 
literally allowing black people to see the fact that you have to move forward in a very particular way and whether or not it was violent was up to that particular person so marcus garvey in a sense that he wanted people to move forward moses took that upon himself to think that he was going to be that progressive person yeah yeah marcus garvey being just a brilliant brilliant orator and leader who was very mm -hmm pro-black, uh, black mm -hmm. nationalist, pan-Africanist. He launched an entire movement. There was a point where he declared himself the provisional president of Africa. Of Africa, basically, yes. <laughs> basically, come and join me. So the comparison here, where we have a man who has kind of evil motivations, and then McDuffie working in this like passing line as Deathlock's punching him in the face and just casually mentioning Marcus Garvey is so good. I love this level of storytelling where you have to go Google shit to make sense <laughs> of why it's so profound. Uh, as we as we kind of wrap up the deathlock section, uh, I don't know. Tell me your thoughts on this. It's so powerful. Again, uh, yeah, because again, when in the '90s, that Black Renaissance, these were the things that I remember the most. Um, when it came to storytelling, this was not in comic books. This was not anywhere that I remember. Um, and so I was drawn to it because they were talking about things that I did know. And things that I didn't know, because, you know, being a teen in that era, you're starting now to understand that certain things were not discussed. Uh, you know, the idea of Marcus Garvey was discussed, but not his notions. Um, there was just a lot of things that you just kind of had to learn in this sense. And the fact that it was in a comic book, it was just mind blowing. Yeah. yeah. Um, black black villains, uh, African conflict, uh, acknowledgement publicly of American racism and how racism, it is. Yeah. And then the whole thing closes with a quote from uh, Ralph Ellison, who's a super prominent, wonderful, important black writer. Look up this guy, not Ralph Waldo Emerson. That's a different guy. This, <laughs> is, a different person. <laughs> this is Ralph Waldo Ellison, who's named after Ralph Waldo Emerson, but it's, it's L-E-L-L-I-S-O-N. So uh, McDuffie closes this uh, story with a quote that says, without the possibility of action, all knowledge comes to one labeled file and forget, and I can neither file nor forget. What else can I do? What else but try to tell you what was really happening when your eyes were looking through? And it is, and it is this which frightens me. Who knows but that on the lower frequencies I speak for you. Uh, so look up Ellison. When you see things close with like a very literary quote in this way, I think it's so gorgeously represented. Uh, I love this story. If you go, if you guys go read it, you could read the whole Deathlock series. It's great. It's a lot mm -hmm. of big guns and a lot of like blocky figures and a lot of crazy names like Killjoy and Freak with a PH. But there's a lot of prominent, wonderful uh, stuff that 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 falls out here. It's a great, great, powerful story. Yes. And if you also want to know a lot more about Ralph Ellison, definitely read uh, Shadow and Act, which I did read uh, 20 years ago. And it's amazing. I read it like seven or eight. And I uh, after that, I discovered James Baldwin and read most of Baldwin's works. I need to go back and read Ellison again now that I have a very different type of understanding of what I was actually reading when I first read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I, at the time I had um, my mother had married a, a gentleman. And at one point in time, he became a Muslim. And so one of the books that he was reading, he gave to me in a shadow and act by this gentleman, mm -hmm. along with Malcolm X's biography and everything. So that's when I read it. Uh, I, I have mad respect for, for every name we're mentioning, but James, James Baldwin is like easily top five of my favorite writers of all time. One of my personal heroes uh, as a gay black male, uh, what he represented, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's still being talked about constantly. He's incredible. Because uh, it's relevant. Everything the whole relevant. education. Yeah, everything is still relevant, which is, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, because it just shows that we're still not progressing. And again, this comes back to the conversation about what just happened in that arc and Deathlock. Those are still very prominent issues that are still happening. So I think highlighting those things still and how it's even kind of permeated into a pop culture medium like um, comic books show that people who say, I don't want my comic books to be political are completely missing. I, uh, I'm a white guy, obviously, and I will sometimes have conversations. Uh, I'm put in a weird position. Well, I don't want to make this overly political, but I get hired by companies a lot to do trauma work. I'm a therapist by trade. Mm-hmm. And they'll hire me to like facilitate conversations about shootings or violence or even Black Lives Matters sometimes. And I have to acknowledge like I'm the white guy facilitating this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I've got to do it with delicacy and I've got to surrender like my voice and control to let other people speak. And it's so delicate, but the experience, one, one of the things that I will mention to white people who are resistant to these ideas sometimes is you got to recognize the entire principles of our country were built on slavery. Literally, we wrote the constitution as a compromise between states that didn't want to have slaves and slaves that uh, the states that did want to have slaves. Everything in our country from police force to financial allocation is built on those compromises. And racism is not going anywhere because it's a fundamental part of the core of us as a nation. And it's really scary to reckon with for white people who have not taken time to realize it. But just because you're not aware of it doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's it's not even about being aware. Um, and I've had this conversation about how it happens. It's not that about being aware. It's because it's not happening to you. And because it's not happening to you, therefore, it doesn't mean anything to you. So when people's like, you know, why does it have to be about race all the time? Because it is. Like we live in a world where that is a problem. Like I literally am so exhausted about talking about the fact that elves can be black. Like I don't <laughs> want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> like like we're, this a, is where we are. Like it's 2022 is, we're having this conversation. <laughs> this is a reference to, as we're recording this, there's shows coming out. There's prequel series about the Lord of the Rings and about Game of Thrones that yes. are both featuring uh, people of color in roles where people are like, there, there's no there's no black elves. <laughs> like it's- mm-hmm. There's no black yeah. elves in the same way. Where, you know, we can't have black mermaids and yet here we are <laughs> like, with the little mermaid. And it's just like this conversation about, you know, how race should not affect these things that we escape into when it has to, you know, and especially when it comes to comics and especially when it comes to say what Stan Lee says, like, you know, his whole mission statement for Marvel was that Marvel Comics was supposed to reflect the world from the outside. You know, and that's what they've been doing. This is what literally all we have been doing, you know, in terms of showing what's happening in real life in a more exaggerated way. But it's here so that way you know that these things are inescapable because they're happening. And part of what makes this story by McDuffie so powerful for me, as I look at Marvel Comics as a company, is again, 1992, Black writer taking Black characters that have been written by white writers and Mm -hmm. using a conflict between fictional countries to emphasize this this really powerful story or commentary that is still standing true, even though it's 30 years later. It's it's, it's, it's good. Even though it's 30, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good. And again, this is where, that's the point where I feel like this is that opportunity where Black characters benefit from Black writers because they're bringing authenticity 
and experience and understanding to these characters. And I think sometimes that's what, what a lot of people complain about is that if you have a white writer, sometimes you don't get that. Um, but I think that there have been white writers who have been very much uh, tuned in to that, that dynamic. And I mean, I say this with, you know, all respect, even though sometimes he annoys me, Brian Bendis does it. Sure. <laughs> you know, but sometimes he gets a little hackneyed with it. Um, I also think that, um, oh, what is this guy's name? And I'm forgetting, oh, I'm forgetting his name. Um, another white writer who's doing really well with black characters. Um, I think he's currently writing, I'm forgetting his name. I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but I know that he did well with writing uh, black characters. Um, and he was the reason why Night Thrasher came back. There, uh, Bendis can swing and hit and swing and miss. Uh, the, the two stories that show up very quickly is we have his super powerful story about Jessica Jones, who is a trauma survivor and telling her authentic story. And then like a few years later, he'll go and tell how like the hood beat Tigra on camera and like, uh, like <laughs> use this violence against women to, 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 to gain power. So some, sometimes it hits and sometimes it misses, but uh, those are different stories. The, the, uh, the beauty with Magnum here is we get yet another story of him being like super savage, super amazing, uh, like incredible bloodthirsty, like take no shit villain. Uh, and that carries over. In his next story, we see a little bit, uh, a little bit of a vulnerable Magnum. Weirdly, Avengers <laughs> uh, <laughs> Volume Three, Eight and Nine, Kurt Busiek, George Perez, gorgeous, gorgeous art. Magnum mm -hmm. returns. He's got his like black mohawk and a, like a goatee. This is my favorite look of his: uh, skin tight, white gold uniform, pop collar, like plunging open shirt. I am into like show me your chest. <laughs> <laughs> Like he is looking good. It's all the way down to his navel, like massive gold belt, gold boots. He's got like the MM belt buckle. Like uh, there's a little bit of like Mr. T reminiscence here for me somehow. Like Yeah, yeah. It's a little hokey. I was fine with the last outfit he had, to be honest. <laughs> I just think he looks sexy in this one. Although I can understand uh, <laughs> why this would be. I, I mean, there's, I mean, yeah, there's, there's levels of sexiness to it. Um, I, I just think that it was... I don't know. It was like such a, a big departure. Like, did he really need that plunging neckline in this? Like, it was so weird. Uh, I don't know. I, I think so I think he's hot, but I hear it too. Uh, so he's built up Magnum Munitions, his company. He's selling weapons again. He says he's unwelcome on American soil. So he has his men hijack a plane from Tierra Verde, which is a fictional country. Uh, they like savagely take over this airport. They're killing civilians. They're taking hostages. Uh, Magnum announces through like a hologram that he's behind this and he has his men steal something called a seismic cannon. Uh, the Avengers attack, there's like their new members, Silverclaw and Triathlon debut here. You probably have never heard of those characters, uh, but Triathlon is another uh, black male featured character who has a lot to say about uh, race and its presentation in the late 90s, but that's an episode for another time. Uh, Magnum is living on a ship called the Evangeline. He's got this multi-billion dollar like resort casino that has like literal theme parks and nightclubs all over it. And it's registered out of Algeria. He, we learn, uh, is actually like really struggling because his powers have grown out of control. The stuff that Apocalypse hit him with. And if he touches the ground, he will like cause earthquakes. So he has to live on the open water. 
and he's got mm. this cannon because he wants to he like wants to use it to correct his powers so the avengers attack there's a big battle uh scarlet witch is there a wonder man is dead but she brings him back there's all this craziness basically the battle ends when uh magnum gets tossed onto the land uh when that happens the earth like opens up and he's like oh no apocalypse is after me and he just like disappears into the ground uh tell me your thoughts on this uh avengers story <laughs> um it's now that i'm now that i'm talking about it with you and putting it in context i remembered it being really amazing but now i'm like oh maybe it wasn't so great <laughs> it wasn't the greatest it, i'm still i'm still hung up on triathlon i i, I hate a triathlon <laughs> Triathlon is, is Delroy Garrett, who is a an Olympian athlete who, if I'm remembering right, like used steroids and then like got publicly shamed. Uh-huh. And then he, I don't know, he becomes an Avenger. He's like trying to reclaim his fame. And then he becomes the 3D man and joins the Agents of Atlas. Like there's the there's the 32nd version of triathlon. Triathlon. Um, which is I a just... terrible fucking code name. <laughs> It was a well, I mean, it was a terrible code name, and the fact that he was very much like, uh, very uh, pro black, and then has the name triathlon, and your superpower is running three times faster than the average man. I feel like <laughs> that was like more a lot offensive, uh, for a an, an African American character. Um, I think that again, this is at the moment where Moses Magnum, they don't know what to do with him. He 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 became one of those uh, villain of the week. Uh, characters where he can be one and done in one issue um, because he's that easy to beat at that point. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, having him in the Avengers um, for two issues was a lot, again, because he's one of those characters that doesn't really get the understanding. But again, he's in this motion where we know what he is. He's selling weapons. Um it becomes uh, very much re- redundant in his stories. Like this is how he's always reintroduced. Like, here's my munitions uh, company. This is what we're doing now. Please stop me. <laughs> like it, it, it's not as, uh, it wasn't as cool anymore. Like he's still kidnapping people for no reason. He's still uh, interacting with superheroes that really don't care what he's doing only until he starts to involve Certain he's, uh, things. he's vulnerable in this story for the first time which is a change like his mm-hmm. powers are out of control and he instead of like i'll kill you for profit he's like i'll kill you to get what i need to fix me uh yeah there, there is a little bit of a change there I, I i think it's in a weird way it's nice to see him vulnerable that's a weird thing to say about this character but uh it, it tells uh, a different yeah. kind of story because he's desperate here it's not like give me your money it's yeah like, yeah yeah he's, he's, like, he's well i mean he's desperate because he's also scared yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because what we find out at the end of the story is that he says that Apocalypse is after him for some reason. Um, and we don't know why Apocalypse is after him, but he is also terrified because now his not only is his powers out of control, but he's seemingly being hunted. So yeah, like you said, that like he he's coming off very desperate. Um, and now he's in the big leagues because now he's going up against uh you know Kurt Busiak's Avengers, which was a very wild guest at that time. Um, and, and just to go back to triathlon for a moment, this is an era of comics where shortly after we literally see picketers like outside Avengers Mansion, like angry because there are no black members of the team. 
And so triathlon uh-huh. that's like gets like shoehorned onto the team. There's there's some interesting stories about race and it's portrayed. We're talking about race. diversity hires in 1998 again. Yeah. It's the conversation that we're still having, um, because again, yeah, you're right. At that point in time, that was a a, a very huge topic. Even I was like, wait, why aren't there any black people in the Avengers? We know that there are black superheroes that exist. You know why why don't they have a seat at the table? And I think that is a very still com- uh, a very still strong conversation to have. Um, which again riles up racists because they're like, why can't it just be an Avenger because the content of his character and not because of, of his skin? I'm like, because it matters. It does it matter. If you matters. have a team of all white people saying, like, we don't care about race, like just come join no. us. It, it's not, it's not super okay. It's not, it's not super okay because the thing is that you, and again, I have this conversation all the time. When you look up to your superheroes and you don't see superheroes that look like you, why would you believe in them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of uh, of white comic book fans don't get that because there's nothing but white superhero characters. Yeah. <laughs> like they don't get that. I, For them, it's not about representation because they're already represented. Well, and it's not the same thing, but as growing up gay, I didn't see gay representation either. They were either the supervillains or like the foppish best friends or the guy that got beat up and committed suicide. Seeing mm-hmm. representation like in comics now with Iceman and other characters is important. It's really crucial. Absolutely. It, and that's why it does... Um, make a difference when we have these conversations about, uh, you know, like, again, like we said, Moses representing uh, a certain aspect of uh, of comic books versus, say, triathlon. Like, that mattered. I just think that, you know, the creation of triathlon was, uh, it was touchy for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> He's not a great character. <laughs> Yeah, it was touching for me because again, it's, we're we're talking about you know stereotypes. <laughs> so I'm gonna cover this one really quickly. Uh, we don't see Moses Magnum again for ten years. It's Amazing Spider-Man number five seventy-seven. Zeb Wells, uh, Moses Magnum is sell- now selling mutant growth hormone, which is like a drug you take that will give you powers, but it's harvested from mm-hmm. DNA. And it sometimes will kill people. And he has like bolstered his mutant growth, growth hormone with like gamma radiation, which is going to be a problem if you take it because that is not a good idea. Uh, he's yeah. testing it on innocence. So again, we see him putting uh, lives in danger in order for him to profit. Uh, Punisher is aware. Uh, like the drug operations on multiple continents. Uh, when Ma- when Magnum hears like Punisher's on his trail, he's like, oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> there's there's like a bunch of battles that break out. Punisher is captured, like the serum's missing. Magnum like beats Punisher up, like with, uh, like just with the butt of a gun and like a cane is like like pretty pretty awful to him actually. But you know, Punisher kind of <laughs> coming to him. Uh, uh, the there's a moment where uh magnum is questioning punisher like wondering if he wants the drug and he says didn't you want to know what it felt like to have all your rage all your hatred converted directly into power to keep killing and killing and killing until all of you is eaten up didn't you want to know what you really are without boundaries without restraint and there's a part of me that's like "Ooh, is this how magnum sees himself uh before he can kill the punisher spider-man breaks in and there's a big battle and it kind of feels a little antiquated and it's fine but uh moses uh like jumps on a boat but he forgets his powers aren't working and they land on the boat and he gets shot in the stomach and then punisher just like leaves him adrift like okay bye and uh (laughs) it's a it's a quick story it's pretty decent i liked this story it's a it's a it's a done in one Uh, tell me your thoughts on the spider-man story and then we'll jump ahead 
Um, I think having to go back to Spider-Man the Punisher after him being gone for so long was a nice little kind of uh, callback. But again, he was easily dispatched the same way. Like, you know, we're going to do something and leave him for dead. And they would have thought they would have made sure to go back and make sure that he was dead. And they didn't. Um, I, I think, again, this is where I felt like the the downfall of Moses, where he could have been a, a really great villain, um, had already happened. Like, it's now been 10 years since he was used again. So no one knows who he is. Um, I thought the, sh the the story was fun, but again, it felt hokey because they weren't treading in any ground. They were just like, okay, well, we've, we've come up against this guy before. We know what, what the deal is, and now he seems weaker. So I'm going to cover his next three appearances very quickly, and then we'll wrap up with okay. his Shuri stuff. So we'll, we'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just present all this really fast just for interest of time. And then we'll talk about yeah, it. Sure, so sure. We get we get Magnum in 2009 in the Dark Wolverine series. So Norman mm -hmm. Osborn has taken over the government. He has a uh, Dakin posing as Wolverine. Uh, so Wolverine's son. This is back when he's like a super bad guy, like super morally complex. Uh, Marjorie Lou's involved in this title as well. And it's decent, but it's kind of a strange read. Basically, Magnum's been in prison. He's made a deal with Norman Osborn. There are other villains involved, like Emily Doolin, the Inquisitor and in Cutthroat. You can look them up in your own time. Uh, they mm -hmm. kill. <laughs> there is a moment where they they kill a guy named Aryan, who's like a white supremacist in jail. That's kind of great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Magnum, Magnum's like part of this team, and Osborne's giving them an assignment. But of course, he like double crosses them. And this is a series where we do see Magnum called a mutant. They they specifically the say. He's a mutant, but it's not necessarily canon because it's not coming from a, a source that's necessarily reliable. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Magnum realizes they've been set up for a suicide mission. Dakin's been sent in to kill them. Uh, they battle this, this Wolverine. Uh, and basically where this ends up is they're trying to expose Osborne for his crimes. Like it's the man in charge, the white man in charge exploiting the black Arja. man. There's a, there's a problem here, but the building gets blown up and they blame Magnum for it is basically what ends up happening. What happened? Yeah. He's on the run and he gets blamed for a crime that the white guy committed. Uh, he next shows up in 2010, Iron Man slash Thor number one by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. Uh, he is has taken over a company called Deterrence Research Corporation, or the DRC, yeah. and he's basically commissioned the creation of like a new orbiting weapons platform. He wants to sell it to North Korea, but like, could you imagine? <laughs> the Crimson Dynamo, who's the Russian guy, blows it up in space, and then uh, and then we get him again in Storm, Volume Three, Numbers Four and Five by Greg Pak, and uh, in 2014, he's joined like a, an alliance of criminals. They are set up by, uh, it's been set up by Wolverine. So he's working with Wolverine here. They have regular meetings and they're like settling disputes by having assassins fight each other. So it's like this underground group that he's part of. It's a strange story for him. Uh, he's still the president of DRC Weapons here. He's representing a clan. They fight with Davis Harmon and Kuva from Break World and Yukio and uh, Storm. Yeah, so many. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like rushing through. Storm <laughs> enters this this room instead of Wolverine because he's believed dead, and uh, she basically says, "No, you guys don't get to fight for control anymore." And Magnum and Harmon are like, "I want Aim Island." No, I want Aim Island. And they Storm like stops the whole fight. And uh, in the end, uh, Yukio seizes control of this like criminal underground. Like I'm in charge now instead of Wolverine. So I'm like rushing through that quickly. But we do see. Magnum called a mutant. 
we see mm-hmm. them in two X-Men adjacent storylines in a Wolverine and a Storm title. Yes. And we see that he's still mm-hmm. like really fucking serious about this weapons business. Uh, in, any thoughts? Yeah, like again, those three stories quickly? <laughs> yeah, again, he became one note. Um, I enjoyed the fact that he was brought up again um, in, in the Storm books uh, because he could have been another great foil for her. Because again, I always say that uh, what Storm suffers from is not having any good villains. And I think that he could have been a really great villain for her um, because we have now two elemental juggernauts in that sense that they could have been like, you know, going at it. But it was not the greatest here. I think he was shoehorned into this. Um, it could have been better, you know, but again, he he's just one of those guys who's like very singular in his thought process. I need to be better at weapons dealing. I need to get better at weapons dealing. He's so like him taking over, you know, one of these clans. I'm like, that doesn't sound like you. Um, because you're not necessarily wanting to be a part of things. You had up until this point said that you wanted to be independent of anybody and you wanted to do it yourself. So it kind of felt weird that he would join up with a group of people, especially after what just happened, uh, you know, during the dark rain stuff. And then uh, finally, we have his most recent appearance in 2019, Shuri number four and five. and we finally see Magnum written by another black writer. Do you want to cover this section quickly? There's some really <laughs> interesting stuff about him here in a surprising way. Yes. Place. So in um, Shuri's run in uh, 2019 and a couple issues, um, Moses Magnum is randomly attending a music festival in Timbuktu, which was so out of character. And this is, <laughs> I, I may not be saying this name correctly, but this is written by Nnedi Okorafor, who has uh, been, yeah. uh, who's done some really lovely stuff with Shuri yes. in the last few years. Uh, go ahead. Yes. Yes. Um, and then while he's there, um, a space lover, <laughs> an alien insect um, that absorbs music, uh, <laughs> goes to this music festival and absorbs the music. And, um, you know, when it's there, Magnum is examining the creature and notice that it can generate um, small black holes in the sense of what, what it does. Um, and so while he's doing it, Storm and Shuri, uh, Shuri shows up, they examine Luber, um, and Iron Shuri, Man's there. Iron Man shows up, and like it just becomes this whole big thing because the black holes are getting bigger. Um, so at this point, you know, Magnum is there. He is now in a different uniform. Um, thankfully, he's bald because that whole hair issue was just, uh, <laughs> just uh, tragic. Uh, just shave just, it. Just shave it at a certain point. <laughs> just shave it at a certain point. He still has the high collar, which is so, like, not 2019 anymore. Um, but basically, you know, he introduces himself as Moses Magnum. And Shuri's like, what kind of name is that? I'm like, yes. Finally, someone fucking says it. Because Moses Magnum is not really the basic uh, name that you would see for a music uh, for a, a villain of this type. Um, and then what she says in it, which was really a standout, she goes, what kind of name is that? That, you know, it sounds like you're trying to be pious and gangster at the same time, which is really ridiculous. <laughs> but he is a product of that time frame. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the, like the, he thought to himself on. back in 1975, I should name myself after a biblical prophet and also a gun. That's and amazing. But again, product of that time, um, because it makes sense for him that he would be a weapons dealer that is named after a weapon. It makes it like I said, his name made sense when McDuffie was writing him, because, again, that it went into his psychology. 
Um, and that psychology just kind of like lessened through the years. I am so, Moses followed me to the promised land. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um the issue starts to come to a close where Magnum is actually drawing power from the growing black hole and the heroes have to come in and swoop him, but they manage to stop the black hole and Moses is then sucked into the black hole as it's closing. So Moses Magnum, if we sum it all up in just a few seconds, is a crazy, savage, powerful villain with a ton of potential who's a really, really cool bad guy. Yes. He, yes, gets, yes. he gets picked up every few years as like the guy you use in a story with the Deathlock thing being the exception. He's connected to the X-Men, but not. He is uh, intense. He is fantastic. And I really fucking love him, actually. I think he's great. But I yeah. don't think we've got the like quintessential Magnum story that would elevate him beyond like a D-list character that is what he heard on yeah. one time. Yeah, I think most people probably know him from like that early X-Men appearance mostly, and that's kind of it. And then he shows up in the back of something once in a while. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts? When you look at this character's whole history, what are your thoughts on him as a character? And what's like the the Moses Magnum story that we need? Um, hmm. Looking back, I think um, Moses had a place. I think that that place wasn't necessarily carved out for him properly. I think uh, people had tried um, and just didn't really know what to do with him. Like he could have been one of those villains that popped up more so than what he did because he was, you know, really about global domination, uh, really when it came down to it for his own uh, personal gains. Um, I think the quintessential story that we needed was establishing who he was, a definitive story, whether he was a mutate or mutant was one aspect of it. Um, his loathing towards just humanity in general, like where did that come from? Um, we needed to understand like why he was so drawn to being just a weapons dealer all the time. Like those are the things that, um, you know, when we talk about villain psychology, he doesn't have one. Yeah, we need we need a background. We need like a childhood. We need to know why he does what he does, right, and yeah. then I, and then I think we can keep him as a morally ambiguous guy who uh -huh. does step on you. But but you give him some motivation that shows why mm -hmm. he is who he is. Uh, I would love to see him come at Krakoa or to try to find some place of prominence. Uh, I would love to see him reckon with apocalypse. I think that would be mm -hmm. a great story. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, I, like you said, I think he'd be a great storm villain, but he could he could be worked into all different kinds of stories as a really formidable threat. Uh, yeah, I with think like his, with like lasting consequences. This guy has like Norman Osborn level potential as a villain. Yes, as a super villain, especially with powers. Like I think his powers need to be refined, not just like earthquake based. Um, yeah, he has that. He has that potential, and just hasn't had the writer to do it. Like. Abbott and Lanning, great. And they still didn't do anything with him. Sure, sure. You know, Abbott uh, and Lanning has like literally reformatted all of the cosmic Marvel universe. And they, there's one guy they couldn't do. Uh, Andre Mason, I think you are a fantastic human being. I love being oh, your friend. I love chatting with you. I love looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's been really, really eye-opening and wonderful to sit down and examine this character with you. I will forever associate Moses Magnum with you now and this conversation we've had today. And I, and I, love, 
I love this character in a way that I didn't know that I could because I never thought about him that much, but I, I think he's phenomenal. Uh, do you have kind of final thoughts uh, as we're wrapping up? And then when you're closing, let us know where people can find you online. And we're going to debut this episode right at the end of September. Is there anything you want to plug or announce? No, no, no. There's nothing I want to plug or announce. Just uh, keep an eye out for me at some conventions. I think the last one for the year is going to be New York Comic Con. Um, so just keep an eye out for me there. But um, in terms of social media, you can find me at Talk Nerdy to Me, and that's T A L K N R D, the number two M E on Instagram and also on Twitter. Uh, Andre's going to come back for the Trial of Havoc on my podcast in a while, which is going to be a ton of fun. Yeah. Uh, we have a really cool cast of people. We're going to have a lot to say. Uh, and you can find uh, Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Uh, we are regularly uploading fantastic stuff to the podcast and also to the Patreon. So right around this time this episode comes out, we'll be releasing our uh, our episode featuring uh, Ramsey Fawaz uh, on X-Men 57. And on the Patreon, on our next episode after this, I'll be reviewing the character Solar with uh, Steve Fox. Uh, and it's going to be... <laughs> he's another character. I'm like, wait, you want to do Solar? Okay. And then I read him and I'm like, oh, he's fucking great. <laughs> yeah, that's really great under underrated heroes and villains that we can always talk about yeah and solar is super not associated with the x-men except that one weird episode of the animated series where he's like i'm a braddock and i run this society and you're like what you <laughs> it's uh it's fun we're gonna have a good time uh andre thank you for sharing your uh saturday afternoon with me it's so great you to see you welcome. my friend yes you too all right everybody we'll see you back here next time on great Malcolm lane